Good morning, church family. Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13, as we continue to make our way through this declaration of God's revelation to His, to his people, as we reflect together on this text and what Paul continues to flesh out for us as ways in which we as the people of God are to live our lives with a transformed life. This morning we'll be in Romans chapter 13, verses 8, 9, and 10. And what I did last week was borrow a little bit of time that I'm going to give back to you this morning. So that's fair, right? Romans chapter 13, verses 8, 9, and 10. You might remember that this section that we're in, in the book of Romans, uh, Paul has now shifted from heavy doctrinal reflections of Christ's work on behalf of you and me, and now he begins to flesh out some of those practical implications of the gospel. How do you and I live our lives in light of this incredible gospel narrative that Christ died for us, that he was buried, and that he rose again. Well, Paul begins this section by reminding you and me that we are collectively to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, and verse two, that we are not to be conformed to the world, but we're to be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then in the rest of this section in chapter 12 down into chapter 13, Paul fleshes out what it looks like for you and me to live our lives transformed by the renewal of our mind. So in chapter 12, Verses 3 through 8, he reflects on what that transformation looks like for those who have been redeemed by Christ toward those other brothers and sisters in Christ. How are we to live our lives toward each each other as believers? And then in verses 9 through 21, by and large, with one or two exceptions, Paul's primary focus is how we live out this transformation in relationship to others. And then verses 1 through 7, Paul fleshes that out in terms of our relationship to government. And then he comes back, perhaps to the apex of exactly what it means for believers to live their lives transformed by the gospel of Christ. Now, if we were to make a list this morning of all of the evidences of a Christian walk, we could list off a number of things. For example, we would list off that uh, for someone whose life has been redeemed by the gospel, we would anticipate that there would be kindness that there would be compassion. We would anticipate that it would be someone who reads the word of God. We would anticipate that it would be someone who participates in the worship of God with other people. And the list would go on and on. 
Paul in Romans chapter 13, verses eight through 14, but this morning we're in verses eight, nine, and 10, reminds us that the apex of the Christian life, the highest expression of faith in Christ is evidenced in love, by love, and through love. So Paul reminds us in this text, brothers and sisters, that we demonstrate our, that our lives have been transformed by this gospel narrative by loving others. Or we could say it this way. We demonstrate our obedience to God's commands by loving one another. Paul's going to flesh this out for us in three ways this morning. He begins here in verse 8 as a reminder that as believers, we are indebted to all to love. We are indebted to all to love. In other words, we must love all people. Look what Paul says. Oh, no one anything. Have no obligation to anyone else. We might say it this way. Have no moral obligation or indebtedness to anyone else, to anything, with one exception, except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul commands believers in verse 8 that we should simultaneously love the brothers and sisters in Christ. We should love one another while at the same time loving everyone else, those outside of the community of faith. Now, Paul begins here with verse 8 with an interesting word. Most of our Bibles translates this word to owe. Owe no one anything. This is the same word that Paul had just spoken of back up in chapters 13, in chapter 13, verses, verses 1 to 7. But notice particularly verse 7. Pay to all what is owed. We are to pay taxes. We are to pay revenue. We are, if you will, to pay respect. We are to pay honor. And all of those things are, are good expressions of a transformed life. But notice Paul reminds us, the greatest of all of these is what? Love. We don't like indebtedness, do we? Or at least most of us don't like indebtedness. If I have a debt, I want to pay that debt off. We're going to spend a lot of energy, focused time, doing whatever is necessary in order to pay that debt. In fact, we oftentimes work our entire lives with the intended purpose of paying somebody something, right? I've got a car note, I've got a gas note, I've got a, a, a house note, I bought a new boat, I have a vacation home, whatever it might be. We spend a lot of energy in life seeking to pay other people. And don't you love it when that debt is finally completely, totally paid. You feel good about it, don't you? 
There's something exciting about it. Perhaps you've participated in Dave Ramsey's snowball effect, and it's just something really exciting when that ball begins to, to roll and it gets bigger and bigger, and all of a sudden you, you pay off all of your debts. But imagine having a debt in your life that you could work your entire life and never retire. Work as hard as you can, work 80 hours this week and 100 hours next week and 40 hours the next week and and 60 hours the next week and 240 the next week, and you will never pay that debt. Friends, Paul says we have that debt. And that debt is a debt of love toward all people. Paul does use this interesting word to owe. It's a word that you've seen before and perhaps you've not realized it. Turn with me all the way back to the very beginning of the book of Romans. Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. And Paul spoke of another debt. He spoke of something, uh, of, of an obligation that he had at the very beginning of the book of Romans. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 14. Paul says, I am, the ESV translates it, I am under, notice that next word, obligation. Or some of your Bible says, reads, I am indebted both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. That same obligation that Paul sensed to declare the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to all people, regardless of who they were, is the same debt that the Apostle Paul says that we owe toward all people as it relates to love. This is one debt that we are to give our lives continually toward. Now, it's no surprise that the Apostle Paul would indicate that believers have an obligation to extend love. One of the very first, if not the very first question I got in an interview with the pulpit committee here at Woodlawn Baptist came from Jeff Andre, and I remember it sitting in Dee Dee Stallings' home. Jeff asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? See, friends, Jesus had given to his new covenant people this new commandment, this greatest commandment, if you will. Listen what Jesus says in John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If what? You love one another. 
So notice what Paul is doing. He's just simply repackaging for us what Jesus has already commanded of his new uh, covenant people that we would demonstrate love. Look what he says. Oh, no one anything except to love one another. It's an obligation, Paul is saying, that we owe specifically to those who are in the household of faith. This is how I am to respond. This is how you are to respond. This is the greatest expression of faith that we can demonstrate in the body of Christ. A new commandment. Notice what Paul says, sorry, notice what Jesus says about that new commandment. Jesus' concern with the New Testament church and love was that we would indeed demonstrate the love that he so well demonstrated for us, but with a very specific purpose. What was one of Jesus's primary means of evangelism? Love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciple. So we come to the book of Acts. And Acts chapter 2, and repeat it again, and Acts chapter 4 are two almost identical phrases or expressions that occur in the book of Acts. As the early church is beginning to move throughout the known world. The very beginning in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the gospel, people come to faith in Christ, and what did those believers immediately begin to do for one another? Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47, they immediately began to demonstrate love. They gather with one another. They center their lives around the preaching and proclamation of the word, around the, around the participation of, of the Lord's Supper. They give to each as any has need. And what does the Lord do through the response of love on behalf of believers toward believers? He adds to the church. And then skip over to Acts chapter 4. And the exact same narrative occurs in Acts chapter 4. And Acts chapter 4 is several years post-Acts chapter 2. And guess what continues to demarcate the people of God in the book of Acts? An incredible display of love. Church, do you want to know what the greatest evangelism program Woodlawn Baptist Church can execute is the greatest evangelism program this church can execute is to demonstrate love toward one another. In fact, look what Paul says. Our first obligation is to love the body of Christ. That is that we are to love each other And then notice what he says. He's going to explain what he just says. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. This phrase, to love another, is a 
not a reference to loving each other in the context of the body of Christ. We've already been commanded to love each other, but our obligation to love isn't exclusive just to the people who are sitting around you. Our obligation to love is extended to all those others as well to all those other people who look nothing like us, to all those other people who act like nothing like us, to all those people who talk nothing like us, to all those people who dress nothing like us. Paul, in reflecting on the implications of the gospel in his own life in a moment of confession, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, makes the following acknowledgement. We used to regard Christ how? according to the flesh. See, Paul is acknowledging the worldview, the mentality, the thought process of those who have not been redeemed by Christ. It should be no surprise that chaos and hatred abound among those who are not believers. It is surprising, but it should not be surprising when unbelievers act out as unbelievers in great disdain and hatred toward other people. Paul is acknowledging we used to do the same thing. I judge people according to the flesh, Paul says. But what happens in Paul's life when his life is redeemed by the gospel of Christ? What happens in Paul's life when the Lord meets him on that Damascus road and he trusts in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, we no longer view people according to the flesh. God radically changes our view toward the others. And friends, this is what Paul is saying. We have an indebtedness to whom? Look around this room for just a moment the person to your left and the person to your right, the person in front of you, the person behind you. You have an incredible debt to that person. But not only to that person, friend. When you leave this building today and you pull out on Jones Creek and that person cuts you off as you pull out onto the road or you cut that other person off as you pull out onto the road, Yes, that person. When you show up at the restaurant as soon as church is over and you have to spend an hour just waiting to get your drink and you're angry at that poor waitress, yes, even to that waitress. When you get home tonight and you realize Your kids did not do their homework assignments all weekend, and now you're going to have to stay up until 11 or 12 o'clock tonight getting their homework done. Yes, even toward Junior, you must express love. And look what Paul says this does. Look at the demonstration If you want to know how to rightly walk with God, if you want to know what it looks like to totally, completely obey God, 
Paul says, look no further than love. For love has fulfilled the law. Now, Paul has spent a lot of time in the book of Romans talking about the law. And he spent a lot of time talking about the law, and we walked through that, and that was about a year ago when we talked about this law that Paul is referring to here. And overall, what does it seem as though Paul's disposition is toward the law? Does he have an overly good view of the law? Does he just love the law? Is he negative towards the law? What is Paul's general disposition toward the law? It doesn't appear that he likes the law much. It seems as though he has a negative view toward the law. You can work all your life trying to obey the law of God and never find justification. That's not the intended purpose of the law. But Paul is also reminding us in this text that there is a beautiful intended purpose of the law. The law was not intended, as Paul will argue here, so much to show us, even though it does, just how big of a sinner we truly are. Paul is acknowledging that the ultimate obligation of the law was so that we might love. Love who? Jesus would tell us we have an obligation to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, with all of our strength. And the second commandment is similar to that. Love your neighbor as yourself. That, my friends, is when you and I can look in the mirror and say, I have perfectly obeyed God. If love is indeed the highest demonstration of faith and hope and trust in Jesus, and we could measure that love this morning, that love that you have toward other people in this body, where might your love meter be this morning? Is your tank half full or half empty today? In what very specific ways are you demonstrating the love of Christ toward brothers and sisters in the context of this church family? In what ways are you demonstrating the love of God to those outside of our church family and thus fulfilling the law of God? But notice what Paul says In verse 9, love summarizes the Old Testament law. If you wanted to capture the entirety of the Old Testament law in one phrase, it would be to love all people. Paul is saying this is the demonstration, this is what is anticipated and expected of those who are walking rightly with God, whose lives have been transformed by the power of this gospel narrative. Look what he says, verse 9. 
for the commandments. Now, Paul has just given a command, the command, verse 8, owe no one anything. By the way, that word owe is in the present tense. And then you come over to that word love, that's an infinitive, it's also in the present tense. This idea of love is something that we are to continually, regularly, daily be demonstrating. Based on what? What is Paul's reasoning? What is his foundation? What is his source, if you will, for such a demand? The Old Testament. Look at verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul's source for such a declaration, friends, is exactly what our source for all declarations ought to be, the word of God. Paul is commanding our love based off of the Ten Commandments. Now, when you reflect on the Ten Commandments, I don't know about you, but I know about me, I oftentimes think of those things as negative statements. Well, why do I think of those as negative statements? For the exact same purpose that they're written here. They're do-nots. It just sounds negative, right? Do not do this. But notice what Paul is saying. These aren't negative expressions. They're positive expressions that intend to demonstrate on our behalf incredible love for one another. Now look with me just real quickly. Leave your finger here in in Romans and look with me over to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is uh, the giving of this decalogue, the giving of these commandments from God. And you'll note that these commands of God are broken up almost in half, the first of which are a demonstration of what it means to love God. This is why Jesus will take from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and remind us that the greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God. The first recounting of the Ten Commandments, that first tablet of the Ten Commandments, are ways that you and I demonstrate that we deeply love God. But notice verse 12. Honor your father and mother. Verse 13. You shall not murder. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The last six of these statements are ways that we demonstrate our love toward others. 
so that the Ten Commandments demonstrate a vertical relationship as well as a horizontal, a horizontal relationship. They demonstrate that indeed we do love God and that we indeed do love one another. And how do I express my love toward others? Well, Paul tells us, don't murder. Well, for the majority of us, we think, aha, I've got that one right. At least that we're not willing to confess. I don't think anyone in here has murdered someone in the last week or in the lifetime. But what does Jesus say to us? See, oftentimes we think murder as being an action. But Jesus says it's much deeper than that. Murder is a heart issue. It's what we think toward another. So Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 5, You have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, what? Anyone who has hated another has committed murder. How are you thinking about others, friends? We love to divide ourselves into camps, do we not? We can see it on large scales. We can divide ourselves between, for example, maybe Democrats and Republicans, and and we see that highlighted and we can get in our corners with each other and, and just spew the most vile, ugly, mean, nasty things toward one another, all from a position of righteousness, right? We see clearly that demonstration. But oftentimes, friends, it's not that level of demonstration of hate or murder that undermines the unity of the body of Christ. It's far more, far more, far more subtle than that. It's when we express deep disregard or disregard toward another because we don't like an action that they took. We don't like the way that they looked at us. We don't like a decision that they made. We don't like the car that they drive. We don't like their 35-minute or 45-minute or 55-minute or 65-minute sermon. Nobody else knows it. Your kids know it because you get in the vehicle and you talk about it. And then you wonder why after they graduate high school, they don't want to participate in the church because you taught them to hate the church. But nobody else really knows it. All the while, your hatred and your disregard is chipping away at your own heart. And before you know it, You're guilty of murder. Don't murder 
Paul says. Look what else he says. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. In some ways, both stealing and coveting are flow from the same idea. From a heart that is displeased with that which God has provided for you, and you want something that is not yours. So you covet your neighbor's possessions, and then you end up stealing them. Or you end up placing your entire family in debt just trying to catch up to them. Trying to be like the Joneses, they say. And all the while, that mentality of disregard for another brother or sister who is seated in this sanctuary, you're just chipping away. at what Christ has commanded us to be and to do. A demonstration of authentic love. Now Paul, or, uh, Paul here does not give us the recounting of these commandments and the order in which they occur in, in Exodus, and neither does he list all six of the commandments that are given for us to have a right vertical relationship. But Paul simply summarizes them. Look what he does here at the end of verse nine, and any other commandment. Or we might translate it this way, if there is any other commandment. And Paul isn't saying, I wonder if there are other commandments. Paul isn't saying, I forgot what these other commandments are. No, he's just simply summarizing. There are these other commandments. And every one of these other commandments teach us what it means to love our neighbor. In all of these, this second tablet, these six last commandments, what is the summary of these commandments? To love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you'll look in your worship guide, Pastor Laramie today read from Leviticus chapter 19, and at the very end is the listing of this text. Leviticus chapter 19, verse, uh, verse 18 What is the summation of the law of God for us? That we love our neighbor as our self. Jesus summarized that eternal truth for us in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus would write or speak of what love is for this covenant community of faith. Listen to Jesus' words, chapter 22, verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. They think they're going to trap Jesus. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend 
all the law and the prophets. The summation of the entirety of the Old Testament is that we are to love God and we are to love one another. And Paul says, nothing demonstrates that your life has been radically transformed by this gospel narrative than when you love. So love, verse 8, is an obligation that we have toward all people. This obligation that we have to all people is founded upon the teaching of the Old Testament. It's summarized in the one statement. And then Jesus, or Paul, concludes with a summation of all of it. Love fulfills the law of God. He states it in the negative here in verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Love, we might say, is performance of the law, as one theologian noted. If you want to perform the law, if you want to act out the law, if you want to live the law of God, love all people. Jesus has not come to cancel the law. He reminds us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, of this eternal truth. He's not here to do away with the law. Jesus has come to do what with the law? Fulfill the law. So it should be no surprise that Paul is arguing that love is the fulfillment of the law for brothers and sisters. There has never been an act of love that so demonstrated love in a pure, complete, total way than that love which Jesus has demonstrated toward you and me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Paul is saying to you and me, if we really want to demonstrate what love looks like, if we really want to experience what love looks like, we have to look no further than the person of Jesus. Paul has been in a recounting of this idea of love all the way back from chapter, from chapter 12, verse, verse 3. He begins to list for us, excuse me, verse 9. He begins to list for us all of these aspects of love. Let love be genuine. Love is genuine, verse 9. And what does genuine love look like? And he lists all of these aspects, and he concludes it now here in verses 8 through 14 with a command for you and me to ultimately fulfill the law of God by demonstrating love toward one another that flows from the love that Christ has demonstrated for us. So what is that love that Christ has demonstrated for us? That love is sacrificial. 
we experience that love in the context of our own families. We understand what sacrifice looks like. It's a give, it's a take. But too often we don't come with that same mentality in the context of the body of Christ. We tend to think it's all a take. So that if you church will give what I want to take or need, then I will gladly take it. And the moment that you stop giving what I think that I need, I'm out of here. And Paul says, no, no, no. Jesus has given us the complete, full, total picture of what love is. It's sacrificial. It's enduring. It never ends. Friends, this is the narrative of God's love toward you and me. Paul's already exclaimed it for us in Romans chapter 8. What shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Jesus' love is enduring toward those who by faith have trusted in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps no greater depiction of love is given toward or for you and me than that depiction of what John gives us in the narrative of 1 John. Would you look with me in closing this morning to 1 John? First John chapter two, verse 10. First John chapter two, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Chapter three, verse 23. Chapter three, verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and do what? And love one another just as he has commanded us. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. God, verse 21, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Would you take just a few moments and reflect in your own life and in your own heart? How are you loving the body of Christ? It would seem from even reading the Ten Commandments that love is a demonstration of two things. Our heart's disposition toward God, it's a heart issue, and it's an action issue. Perhaps the harder of all of these is to test what our heart's disposition is. Why? Because our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Who can understand them? And the more clear issue, the clearer issue seems to be our actions. 
How and in what ways are you demonstrating the love of God toward people in this congregation? How do you care for them? Do you demonstrate that through words? Do you call? Do you write a letter? Do you encourage? Do you warn? Most of us like the encouragement. Great sermon, preacher. Few of us like the warning. Terrible sermon, preacher. But we need to hear both. It's not very loving if you watch your child run toward the Grand Canyon and without warning let them fall off of the edge of the Grand Canyon down into the vast gorge of the Grand Canyon. And neither is it loving, friends, for you and me together And the only thing that we ever say to one another, life is great and it's wonderful and you should join me in that greatness and we say back to each other, yes, you are indeed great. How are you demonstrating love toward those on the outside? How are you demonstrating love toward your neighbor? that's not a believer. What act of love are you giving to that boss at work that you believe is intent on destroying your life? What love are you demonstrating toward a child whose life for the last year, five years, ten years, has been one of rebellion against God and you. John's thought summed it up well. Love and law need each other. Love needs law for its direction while law needs love for its inspiration. The love of God inspires you and me to walk rightly with God and toward one another. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the demonstration of love that you have given to us through the sending of your son, Jesus. And in that demonstration, Lord, you're enabling us as brothers and sisters in Christ to walk rightly with you by loving one another. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that you would cause us by your spirit to indeed love one another. Would you